Welcome to Riding the Waves of Life, a Boundary Family Services podcast. Welcome, families. In the next few episodes, we're going to be speaking with Sean Larson about childhood anxiety and what comes along with that and different tools and all sorts of wonderful things from him. So I'm going to let him introduce himself and get going. Hello, everyone. Uh, Yeah, so my name is, I guess I'm Dr. Sean Larson now. I finished my PhD this last year, which is exciting. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Sean Larson, and I've worked uh, in the area of child and youth uh, mental health in a number of different roles for probably 15 years, including a lot of outpatient work and a little bit of inpatient work, a little bit of research, and always happy to talk about uh, especially anxiety with families. So important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that happening in the recent years, especially with COVID and everything like that, but um, definitely have been seeing a rise in childhood anxiety and adult anxiety. So I think it's just really important to have people like you around who can help people out and let people understand what's really going on. So thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. So what are you going to share with us in this presentation? So I was thinking of um, starting uh, with just kind of introducing the importance of anxiety because I think any discussion on anxiety needs to talk about why we need anxiety, why it's good for kids, uh, and why, you know, the old idea of, oh, they have anxiety, this is a problem, isn't necessarily always true. It's quite natural Mm -hmm. for kids to have anxiety. It's good for them to have anxiety. They need anxiety. But certainly with that in mind, we'll move into later talking about places where that anxiety gets in the way and how we can learn to manage it. But after I talk a little bit about Uh, why we need anxiety, I I thought I'd talk about children's brains, Mm because I think understanding anxiety in children, uh, we need to understand uh, how children differ from adults, and they they do a lot when it comes to anxiety. There's some huge differences between kids and adults and anxiety. And then, yeah, we can move into the fun stuff of uh, what are we going to do to help kids when they have anxiety, and then we can talk a bit about COVID and anxiety and caffeine and all the other fun topics that overlap with anxiety. Wonderful. How's that sound? That sounds perfect. I'm, I'm looking forward to the whole thing. Great. All right. So I guess we're going to get started on why anxiety is important because it actually is an important part of who we are as animals. Um, all as I've explained to my kids many times, all animals have anxiety. It's there for a good reason. And it's something that um, we should be happy to have, but also understand it more so that we know why it's there and why it's important and how to live at one with it. Yeah. And I know whenever I, whenever I talk to groups, uh, I always ask people in the group to put up their hands uh, if they would take a magic pill uh, that would get rid of all their anxiety. And I always do that just kind of to get a sense of how people view anxiety. Cause so often when people talk about anxiety, they talk about all the places where it's bad mm-hmm. uh, and they never tend to talk about the places where it's actually that helpful. So when, especially when you ask a group of like teenagers or children, like if I could give you a pill that would get rid of all of your anxiety, 
uh, would you take it? Uh, typically, like most of the hands uh, in mm -hmm. the auditorium will go up. And, and I think too, if you think about like socially, like when people mention anxiety, uh, it's usually talking about anxiety where it's a real negative for them mm -hmm. or it's really getting in the way of their functioning, right? Yeah, that is actually, in my experience, it is always a negative thing, always when it's talked about. And I, I love then talking about, we don't have that many examples from science of uh, people who didn't have anxiety, but we do have one pretty interesting one about uh, patient SM. So I don't know, mm -hmm. are you familiar with patient SM? I am, because I remember you talking about her <laughs> in the past, and I explained her to my children, actually, just recently, just to explain why anxiety, what life would be like without anxiety, and why that's actually not a positive thing. But um, I really would like you to talk about her for every all the listeners so that they can actually have an understanding of what it means to not have anxiety. Yeah, so patient SM had this super rare disorder called Urbach-Weiss disease, uh, which calcified the amygdala. And so the amygdala is like this little almond-shaped uh, part of your brain that sits kind of in the middle of the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a really old part of the brain, but it's the part of the brain that researchers think is fairly central in terms of how people experience anxiety and what anxiety does to us. And mm -hmm. so this part in her brain um, was destroyed. So it wasn't functioning. What that ended up looking like for her then was that in situations where people would typically be scared, um, such as people jumping out and trying to startle her or like snakes being, and there was one experiment they did in the lab where um, they'd put all these poisonous snakes near her and see how she'd respond. And they, they were measuring her heart rate and everything. And uh, her fear response uh, was pretty flat. There's some really interesting graphs out there. If you want to Google patient SM, you can look at some of the research. But she really didn't show much of a fear response to things that people typically uh, would be afraid of. They, they were able to make her have panic attacks, but they did that through the nervous system. So it, so it was more a bottom-up panic attack. It wasn't like the brain is like, oh, we should be really scared of this. It was just they, they were able to stimulate panic attacks through right. heart rate and other stuff and overwhelm her body. But, it, but her brain from the other way in uh, was never like, oh, I'm having a panic attack. This is terrifying. Right. Uh, it was more just like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, and so patient SM is interesting because nobody's allowed to know who she is uh, because she's so vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? And, and so this is one of the things that I think is really telling about this story is just that her life prior to being discovered by researchers as somebody who didn't experience anxiety was just filled with accidents and problems, uh, like mm -hmm. little injuries all the time. She was in a number of domestic abuse relationships. Right. She was held at gunpoint a few times, wow. which is, yeah, which is fascinating, yeah. right? Because yeah. there aren't that many people who are held at gunpoint once, let alone a number of times. And it's interesting when you mm -hmm. read the actual articles where they describe these experiences, you know, she just chose to walk through the same part of town because it was quickest without her brain right. being like, oh, maybe I shouldn't walk through that park. And this is like major urban areas in the States of like, maybe I shouldn't walk through that park uh, at this time of night, or maybe mm -hmm. I shouldn't just push my way through that crowd of people that uh, may have been unsafe or somebody else's brain might've been like, hmm, 
that doesn't look right. like a good situation to walk through. Well, she just, she didn't have that memory reflex of like your brain goes back into the Rolodex and goes, wait a second, this happened when I did this. So maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Well, no. and it probably stopped right before that, like before the don't do this. It, yeah. it probably could have been like, oh yeah, we got held at gunpoint. Meh, like just kind right. of categorized it in the same area as somebody else would categorize. Oh yeah, I had microwave popcorn last night. Yes, exactly. Right? And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just cruise through the crowd and, they, and then like people, you know, they'd like hold a gun up to her and be like, give me all your money. And she'd be like, oh, no, thank you. And like continue to walk. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me that she survived. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's really telling about anxiety, right? Just mm-hmm. just when you look at, you know, how at risk she was, and I'm sure there's a lot more, but but they were more focused on kind of that nervous response or her ability to to perceive threat. Right. Um, but when I think of that kind of broad spectrum of what anxiety does, uh, it, it even goes beyond that, right? Because I imagine having a conversation with her would have been challenging right? because she wouldn't have had that braking system in the brain that's like, oh yeah, maybe don't say that because it might offend this other exactly. person, Because right? anxiety... Anxiety plays a huge role in that. It plays a huge role in uh, saying, oh, yeah, friendships and relationships are important. So let's mm-hmm. not offend and push these people. Yeah, away. she wouldn't really have a filter. It would just kind of yeah, be or, whatever she says. She's just going to say, yeah, because she doesn't have that warning system going, well, this person might not want to hear that. And your life might get pretty complicated if you say that. she just say it. <laughs> yeah like yeah. maybe we shouldn't talk about american politics like she wouldn't have that right breaking system either yeah yeah i think she's just such a fascinating example of why anxiety is so important and i could imagine too you know when you look at performance in school or performance in areas that are important to you in life it's your brain saying oh man i really don't want you know the negative outcome of not doing this so if your goal yeah. is to you know get into a university and do a certain program uh, or to work really hard in an apprenticeship, anxiety plays a role in that too, because it pushes us towards these things that we want uh, by using that fear of not achieving them, right? Like right. there's a ton of performance anxiety that people experience in school because it's like, oh, I'd really, I'd really not like to fail this so that I can do what I want to do with my life. It's frightening talking to yeah. teenagers sometimes, right? Yeah. That are like, oh man, I got this bad grade. I'm never going to do anything with my yes. life. And you know, like, as a middle-aged person who's, you know, been back to school, done a ton of school, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, oh man, you have so much life ahead of you to get that figured out. Yes, yeah. it's important to do it, but you failing this test is not. It's not the end. Not the, I think. No. Yeah. It's the end of their world in the moment, but not the end of their future world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, which is really going to tie into when we talk about brains, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cause, yeah. Because kids have such a hard time uh looking into the future in the way that adults can but but yeah it's just you know when I think of what I want from my kids I I want them to navigate the world in a way that's Mm -hmm. safe right like I want my daughter if she's sitting around a campfire and somebody feels unsafe I want her brain to be like hey maybe stop talking to this person yes uh, and and move away or or if you know we we live in Rosalind where there's so many bears around here Mm -hmm that I'd love it when my kids walk home from school, if they're like, oh yeah, maybe don't take the back alley in spring or fall. Cause you know, there's going to be a couple bears in that alley. Yeah. yeah and so I, I, I want my kids to have healthy anxiety systems. I want them to be um, compassionate and empathetic. Cause I think anxiety plays into our ability to do that sometimes. 
And so I really want them to have anxiety, but I don't want it to to get in the way and cripple their opportunities to do things in their lives because that's that's exactly. the negative side of anxiety. Exactly. Being like, if there's bears out, not having them be like, yes, I'm not going to go down that that alley, but to be have the fear of there's bears out, so I'm not ever going to walk again. Yeah. Is, is a difference, right? There's the healthy anxiety of, I'll take a different route because I probably don't want to run into the bears that will probably be down that route versus I'm just not going to go because there's yeah, going to be bears is, everywhere possibly, <laughs> right? Yeah, which was so funny. Like when we first moved to Rosalind, I remember my my wife um, saying, well, how am I supposed to still go running and walking with all the right. bears? And this was like a number of years ago. And this, I mean, this really does tie in a lot to anxiety, mm-hmm. but she was... When she first moved here, because bears were something she hadn't encountered a lot of, right? right? Like we'd lived, we'd lived in um, Victoria and, and Cranbrook uh, in those areas previously. Uh, and we'd seen bears a lot in the past because we spent a lot of time in the mountains growing up, but never when they were like in our backyard regularly. Yeah. And so she was like, where, how am I going to go anywhere now that we live in Rosalind? And it's so funny now uh, that we've been here for like seven years now mm-hmm. and she knows it's important to be cautious around them yeah um but it's interesting to see how her anxiety system now still lets her experience a lot of reward in the world uh a- appreciate and see the bears as important and something that we need to be aware of when we're out uh, but it certainly doesn't get in the way of her enjoying what she wants to enjoy no exactly it's letting your brain kind of learn about the fear Right. And then becoming comfortable in the fact that you have tools to be able to keep yourself safe in in certain situations versus when she first moved, there was an unknown. Now she has the knowns and she's like, okay, I can handle this. (laughs) Yeah. And she has that experience. Well, and it ties in. So what are the, so I always, like, I'll usually talk about patient SM when I talk about anxiety. And then the other example I usually talk about is Alex Honnold. Uh, Do you know who Alex Honnold is? I don't. So he is um, a free climber. So he does these. Oh yes, I do. Climbs. I actually yeah. do know who he is. He climbed the face of El Capitan or whatever, right? He did like he yeah, free yeah. climbed the whole face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like three thousand meters yeah. or, or so, maybe more, without a rope. Yeah, uh, like a like an all day climb on like. And he didn't even pick the easy way up. Like he picked a really challenging way up. No, yeah, he well, without he, a rope. He mapped it out for years. And then one day just decided to go <laughs> and just <Yeah>. did it. <laughs> and well, it was it's like, crazy. Yeah. 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 And so 100%. like, so he, he was doing stuff like that before. So he did another major climb uh, of another famous uh, climb called the Half Dome, right? Like what the North mm-hmm. Face logo is designed after. Yeah. But he, he did that climb and he had a like a TED talk about it. And there were all these neuroscientists in the crowd who were like, oh man, this guy's probably got a really interesting brain. And so right. they approached him after and asked if they could do scans and check out his brain. And they were fully expecting to find what they'd found with patient SM and that they, right. they thought he probably had an amygdala that wasn't working. Um, and so they, some of their initial scans, I think, were having him look at like frightening rock climbing type imagery and stuff like that. And then they compared his amygdala firing while he was doing that to another high risk seeking uh, professional rock climber. And sure enough, Alex Hanold's brain and, and his amygdala, when he was looking at this rock climbing imagery, uh, there wasn't any activity there. Like it was just right. totally quiet. 
but then when they looked at his anxiety in other areas, they found that he actually has a, a fair mm-hmm. bit of anxiety and like a healthy response to the world around stuff like financial stresses, right. uh, around goals he set, around relationships. Mm-hmm. And so he his amygdala still functioned. And so they dug deeper and they were like, so what, why aren't you showing up as stressed essentially and I'm really simplifying it? And what they found was that he's such a meticulous guy. And mm-hmm. so in building up to these free climbs, what he'd done was he'd kept these really detailed journals to where he would climb smaller and relatively, I mean, relative for him, since he's a ridiculously good climber, relatively safe. Uh, yeah. He'd do these relatively safe climbs over and over and over again, like thousands of mm-hmm. times. And, he, and he'd record his response to it. And so he essentially, over time, uh, was able to learn to control that amygdala related to his climbing, right. uh, which I, I find so fascinating. And it's like the, you know, when we talk about like my wife and bears, Alex Hanold's like the far end of that spectrum where he, he has conditioned his brain, just like, you know, when my, the first time my wife saw a bear here, uh, it was probably froze her in her tracks a little bit. She couldn't think clearly or remember all this stuff. And I'll give an example of that as we move on, but her brain probably changed pretty dramatically with seeing that bear. And then the next time, maybe a little bit less. And the next time, maybe a little bit less because each time she was encountering them safely. Right. Uh, And now to the point where, you know, it's not impacting her. So Alex Hanold like intentionally did this over like thousands and thousands and thousands of climbs, which allowed him to do this, you know, 3,300 meter climb up El Cap, which which is insane. Like one false move oh. uh, would have been the end of his life. There's a whole section where it was just like s- smooth granite. <laughs> so there's like, what do you hold on to? Really? He's yeah, like, he's got like, like his nails little pinky finger and a hole. Yeah. I remember yeah, watching because there's a, um, there's a, the show on it, right? They did a movie. My, my palms were sweaty just watching him do it. And I'm like, it's obvious that he gets to the top, right? Like they, the movie would have, wouldn't have been made or they would have advertised it differently. Like, it's really obvious that he makes it, but I'm, I'm actually, my heart is starting to race a little bit. And my palms are getting sweaty, just watching him do it. <laughs> so oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally oh, terrifying. And just thinking about his career to me is terrifying because that that would be something I'd argue that you know maybe your brain was doing a pretty good job and maybe you didn't need to condition it to stop doing that job if it was like hey maybe we shouldn't be 3,000 meters up without a rope yeah like that that to me seems like a pretty healthy brain it does yeah well I essentially he gave himself exposure therapy right that made him go this is fine after a while right but whew it's a bit like kids too, isn't it? With their anxiety where, mm. you know, there will be some areas where it just cripples them. And then other yeah. areas where, you know, you're like, man, I almost wish you had a little more anxiety yeah. in this area. Yeah. Yeah. And having yeah. an understanding as an adult of that and not disregarding it too. Right. Of like, but wait a second, you were doing that. And now you're feeling like this with that, that doesn't make sense. And then having them be like, feel bad about it and all those things too. Right. So. Yeah. And, and also I think important to recognize that, uh, you know, we don't have to just be passengers to our anxiety. Cause I even mm-hmm. talk to so many adults who are like, well, I'm afraid of spiders. That's just me. Right. Right. Like, and people think it's just like, it's them. And I think certainly we all have different nervous systems and we'll all have different responses to stuff. 
just based on our personality and experience and whatever. But in my work, you know, over the last 15 or so years, uh, anxiety is one of the most manageable things, like, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like specific fears, like those are, those are pretty easy cases, I want to say, generally speaking, maybe social anxiety in teenagers is a little harder, because it's so parallel to their natural drives at that time. Mm-hmm. But like specific phobias, so like a fear of spiders or heights or needles or airplanes, like I would take those cases all day, because yeah. we have really good success with them fairly quickly. And so I think that maybe is just a misunderstanding of people of like, oh, I have this. And people Googling the names of fears is a thing, too. I have so many <laughs> Google like, and anxiety? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, they're like, do you know what whatever, whatever phobia is? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, you're supposed to be the doctor. And right. it's like, <laughs> yeah, but I haven't, I haven't looked at the phobia of unpopped popcorn kernels or whatever right. thing they've looked up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really just a Latin with phobia on it. And, yeah, ugh, yeah, I hear that it really is. Well, I have this. Yeah. Well, and and also just how Google feeds into people's anxiety so easily too, because they have the algorithms that once you start searching one thing, then they just come up with so many other things for you to look at that you just like fly down the rabbit hole until you're having a panic attack that you know you're gonna die, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well. Yeah, and I think it just leads people to think it's more of a trait than a state, right? It's yeah. More, it's more something that's ingrained in you versus something that you can change. Like even the big things like public speaking, we can still work on those and change them. And people have a lot of success when they face their fears. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast the other day with this 70-year-old who who got treatment for social phobia in his 70s uh, and it was remarkable how much it changed his life and like the whole time I was listening to it I just felt so sad because I was like here he is at like 70 Mm -hmm. and it was like six months and he had these huge changes and it was like man if somebody had been there to help him in his you know 20s or teens or as a child like because because anxiety when it goes wrong um, it just stifles our opportunity for reward in the world And that speaks to actually, there's a stigma around mental blocks, right? Whether it be anxiety or depression or, you know, those sorts of things is that finally now people are talking about it more. So for this man who's 70, maybe he didn't deal with it because it just wasn't something you talked about, right? For a very long time. And then so now it's actually we're talking about it more. So it's becoming more normalized and people feel better about going and getting help and talking about it more and understanding it more, which I think is really great. Yeah. And so often when I'm working with kids with anxiety, it's important to bring the family in because mm-hmm. oftentimes we also are working with families with anxiety and we can do yeah. sneaky work uh, with parents. I, I feel like more parents have destroyed fidgets in my office because of over squeezing them uh, <laughs> than kids yes yeah. the nervous the nervous parents right mm. um and, and it's yeah again to me it's like I think if we can change anxiety in systems too and I think it's a good message for parents of like mm-hmm. uh I, I think kids learn most by seeing and by doing repetitively and so if yeah. we show them how we change our own patterns it can be one of the most helpful things for them Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. And it's important because it does follow down families and there's the anxiety gene. You know, we all have anxiety, 
different things can get awoken throughout your, your life experiences. And in certain families, it can relate differently than in other families. And some families just have a more likelihood of anxiety being just stronger in the way of it presenting itself. I know in my family, it, it, it has run down the family from past, like much past trauma and just has come down each one. And, and we've throughout the history, we've learned how to deal with it better and better and better and better. But I am seeing it in my son now that he's getting a bit older. So it's interesting watching it and knowing and being aware of it more now than when I was a kid and had it. There wasn't really like my mom knew because she had it and was able to help me with it. But yeah, that process of it following generations is interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. And, I, and yeah. I think there are some, like, I mean, there's always that nature and nurture piece. So there, mm-hmm. there's always kind of the role that our genetics and our, our genetic history plays on, on how we behave and experience the world. But I think even those of us who are gifted with these uh, heavy, heavy hands of anxiety, <laughs> I think there's still so much we could do, because I certainly fall into that category of somebody who is probably had at least my share of anxiety, if not mm-hmm. more than my share. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, just the the ability to figure it out and know that it's there and live with it and be one with it because it's important. It's supposed to be there. And instead of trying to get rid of it, because it was always like, get rid yeah. of it. You don't want it around, get rid of it. But now it's coming around to know like it's part of you. We all have it. So now you just have to live at one with it and figure out what that is for you because it's different for everybody. Yeah. 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 Which probably segues nicely into, uh, you know, what is anxiety? Yeah. Um, and, and anxiety is an emotion, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think um, to talk about anxiety is to talk about emotions. And, and I think as a society, we're not great at emotions. We don't talk about emotions well. Emotions are good, even though, you know, in my work, uh, so many emails and phone calls from parents who describe a negative emotion and say, oh, no, my child mm-hmm. is sad or my child is scared or my child is angry. My child is uh, any of these emotions. Uh, you, you need to get rid of it. Right. Because yeah. I don't know where it came from, but there's this view that uh, you're doing a good job as a parent if your children are happy all the time. I know. It's so backwards. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas I think, you know, you're doing a good job as a parent if you allow your children to experience all emotions and mm-hmm. learn their value, uh, even even anger uh, and especially, yeah. you know, learning about anger in boys. And that's that's something I really want to work a lot more with. I've been thinking of writing a bit more about especially anger with boys mm-hmm. just because I think we handle it in such an in, in a bit of a backwards way that doesn't fully understand it because because anger anger is an emotion that it's really a second it well it is a secondary emotion and then yeah. and I'll, I'll talk about this as we talk about anxiety it's hard to talk about anger without talking about anxiety because yeah. the only time people are angry is when they're hurt or scared and that's because mm-hmm. anger is this activating emotion it makes you bigger it makes you stronger it makes you more powerful when you need to act on something that's either hurt you or could potentially yeah hurt you right yeah. And so, you know, anger is a great, uh, it's a great example of, you know, an emotion that's good, but that isn't often seen as that mm-hmm. in society. And what, what's interesting, I think, is when I work with boys and anxiety or with boys and anger, one of the biggest tasks around that is helping boys feel comfortable with the sadness and the fear that's underneath 
the anger. Yeah. And I think that's true with men too, because, you know, in, when we look at hegemonica, like dominant views of masculinity or what it means to be a man in our society, to be a man means to be autonomous and to be powerful and to be yeah. big and to be strong, which are things that anger kind of is. Uh, it doesn't mean to be vulnerable and weak, no. which are things that sadness and anxiety are. And so I think those are very hard emotions for men and for boys to feel in the world they feel uncomfortable with them. And I think the world for a long time has felt uncomfortable with them too yeah. and has sent that message. And that's why they're called bad emotions, right? That's why there's good emotions and bad emotions is because they're good because you feel comfortable around the person when you feel them. And they're bad because you feel uncomfortable around the person when they're feeling them. And I, that actually goes into a lot of the stuff that I've talked to families about with learning how to deal with your own emotions so you can help your children learn their tools to deal with theirs. And because like you yeah, were saying, no. previous generations, not even that long ago, were taught that there's good ones and there's bad ones and we don't want to show the bad ones. Um, and if you do, that's a problem and you need to go away versus, oh man, you're feeling so angry right now. Oh. And like letting them scream and yell and do whatever they're, they're doing. And then afterwards talking to them about it. Wow, that was big. Let's talk about it, which I think is really cool. I think it's really great that as, as a whole, we're starting to kind of get rid of that old way of thinking about emotions. Yeah. Well, and I, I think when we don't understand emotions, they have the opportunity to control us, right? Like yeah. if, I mean, ang oh, anger sure. is such a good example of that too. Cause I mean, when you talk to people about anger, usually they're talking about how they're justified to experience it, mm -hmm. right? Like it's like, well, well, they did this and that's yeah. why I'm mad, right? And and yeah, so I think for ourselves, uh, I, I've tried to since learning more about these things, like when I feel really mad about something, trying to break it down and be like, well, well where was I hurt here? Or, mm -hmm. or what was I afraid of happening? And you can yeah. always find the root yeah. of it. Right. Like, well, yeah. well, yeah, I felt I felt anger because I felt left out and I wish they yeah. would have called me and invited me to that yeah. thing. So I felt angry at them because that's easier than feeling rejected by yeah. them. And I wanted to fight against that. Yeah. Right. And I think when you when you can break it down like that, which, you know, you can't really do in the moment. Um, no, of course not. Sit down. That's why we wait. Yeah, you sit down after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so anxiety is an emotion and all emotions push us towards things that are good for us or keep us away from things that are bad for us. And if you think of any emotion, that's what it's doing. Like sadness, for example, is typically related to if we lose something that was meaningful to us, whether it yeah. be a relationship or an item uh, or even knowledge sometimes, then there's sadness associated, which is really important and powerful because if we didn't feel sad when we lost things that were meaningful, we probably wouldn't hang on to meaningful things yeah. quite as strongly or search them out. I, I hope, you know, you can expand on that and think, well, you know, things like grief then, if I can understand that I'm feeling sadness because I lost something meaningful, it can really change the way that we experience that feeling to make it more mm. meaningful, right? Because you know, grieving in a way that's meaningful is being able to accept that emotion of feeling sad, being able to recognize what it's trying to do for you and being able to even sit in it for a bit, mm -hmm. right? And say like, well, I am sad because I lost yeah. this thing and I don't want to give them up, right? Because I, I mean, anyone who's ever grieved something knows that the worst thing that 
anyone can ever say to you is, well, you'll get over this or it'll be oh, fine because it's like, get over what? Like, how am I ever going to get over this person? And you shouldn't get over a, a meaningful, you know, if you if you no. lose someone important to you, you shouldn't get over that. They should be someone who's always important to you. You should just learn yeah. to find reward as, yeah. as well as feel that sadness that they're in, not in, there anymore. In grief, I always say that it's never going to go away. Over time, it will change, but it will never go. It'll always be there yeah. because that was an important thing to you or an important relationship or person or animal or whatever has been lost. It was really important. And you had lots of love and lots of happiness with that. And so, yes, there is grief and it'll always be there, but it will change over time. Yeah. And it won't, you know, that as soon as something that, you know, you built goals around or whatever, like, mm -hmm. you know, for people who lose a partner or, or a child, like, I mean, that grief is crippling yeah. initially it just crushes you and that's I mean that just shows the strength of or the power of what you've lost and the mm -hmm. meaning of what you've lost um, and over time it might not crush you but there yeah. is almost that really meaningful sadness of being able mm -hmm. to sit and just kind of reflect on that relationship yeah exactly yeah and so anxiety I mean its primary role seems to largely be to keep us away from things that could potentially hurt us. So mm. when I'm talking about anxiety, I'm talking about, you know, the way the brain and the body respond and push us uh, away from things that could potentially hurt us, which, which really is a process that happens in our thoughts and in our bodies uh, and, and in that strong emotional experience or what we feel. Mm -hmm. Should we sidetrack really quickly and talk about brains? Sure. I love talking about brains. <laughs> it's one of my, one of my favorite I things. Spend I won't spend too much time because I know no. the bulk of this should be about anxiety, but I just, yeah. I really want to emphasize that the brain of a child is dramatically different from the brain yes. of an adult, because that, that is so important to understand and understanding how it's different really changes how we respond to kids. Yeah. And it is important. I think that adults forget a lot of the times because their kids can seem so mature, but in reality, no, <laughs> our brains are a lot different yeah. than theirs. Yeah. And so the quick summary is that their brains will be be growing and maturing and, and more of this is organizing than growing till about the age of 25 mm -hmm. uh, a little earlier in females a little later in males uh, but that's kind of when the human brain reaches full maturity and one of that last processes that's happening through adolescence which is really important is this process called myelination mm -hmm. which uh, is this little fatty coating that goes over all the neurons which speeds up the electrical transmission because anytime we have a thought or feeling or anything, it's driven by these little electrical signals in the brain that are transferred between uh, neurons. And so adding this little coding speeds up the way that parts of the brain work by sometimes up to or over a hundred times, which yeah. is a huge shift. Brains start organizing essentially from the inside out. Uh, and what that means is that areas least necessary for survival are the last to organize and things like being super creative or having great planning skills, those are a little bit lower down the rank than things like learning to regulate temperature, mm -hmm. keeping a steady heart rate, and our basic emotional systems, because those are the very first things to go online, essentially. And when mm -hmm. kids are born, they have an emotional system that's going to be developing quite a lot over the next three to five years. Yeah. A lot of emotional development happens then. And then a lot of that kind of more outer outer development of stuff that, you know, we refer to as executive functioning, which is like planning. Uh, I call it time traveling. I call it the time traveling part of the brain. So right. where people can 
start to look back at what they've done and then make guesses about what the future looks like. Like that's some of the later stuff yeah. uh, to organize in the brain, which really, really changes the way that kids function. And so the way that a lot of this organization is happening is that early in life, the brain is just building as much mass as it can. It's just packing in uh, this huge, dense web of neural pathways. And I, I often use the metaphor if, of it's a bit like if you were putting a new village in on a field of grass, fairly quickly, what would happen is as people ran across the grass in all different directions, mm -hmm. you just have this mass uh, of little dirt pathways everywhere because people are running all over the place you don't really have shelters established or main hubs of the community established yet so people are just going everywhere. every direction which is a little bit like a child's brain and then as you start to figure out exactly where it is you need to go uh, so basically the pathways that are being used or are useful are the pathways that become stronger and the other ones get grown over Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is a really important thing to remember about brains. So the heaviest your brain's ever going to be is somewhere around the age of 12. Oh, okay. like that's the most dense your brain's going to be. And then after that, it starts clipping off a lot. Yeah. So if a yeah. 12 year old tells you, you know, they have a bigger brain than you, there are <laughs> parts to that that aren't, they're not really wrong. No. <laughs> well, because your brain but doesn't they have a less organized brain. <laughs> yeah. Gets rid of like, I call it a brain dump. It does it around like between three and four years old, I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And then it does it again when they're teens-ish around that time. Yeah, it's this, yeah. It's this process of proliferation and pruning. And, yeah. and so where it's building neurons and then where some of these pathways that aren't being used, they just kind of wither off and yeah. disappear. But, but I think it's a really important part of brain development to understand is that these pathways that become really strong that control the behaviors that we're doing and the, the way that we process the world, they're strengthened by using them and by using them mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again. And it's, it's interesting when kids get older, there's this thing where we think, well, I, I've told them, I've explained this mm -hmm. to them, so they should be able to do it. And especially for little kids, mm -hmm. kids don't learn by being told, right. which I, I hate to ruin that. Like, certainly <laughs> there's some what we call top-down control where you can absolutely guide somebody verbally mm -hmm. to doing something but it's not like a fully ingrained learned behavior yet right at this point and so so to go back to that kind of village in, in the grass metaphor it's like you've got this dirt path and all of a sudden you realize like oh man this dirt path is taking me too long to get to where I want to get to right. we're going to need a new path and so you could tell somebody like well the quickest path is just going to be through the grass right there and that's going to get you there and they may be able to do it when it's sunny and when it's nice out and when it's dry out mm -hmm. but if it's dark if they're scared if it's right. if it's rainy they're probably going to be like oh well I know that way is quicker um, but there's already this dirt path here that I'm going to follow yeah. which is exactly like these childhood behaviors right where you know, and when they're really calm, you can be like, well, share with your brother. And they'll be like, okay, I could share with my brother. Right. Um, but then when they're freaking out, uh, what pathway <laughs> yeah. are they going to go back yeah. down? Right. And it, it, it really, the metaphor really ties in so directly with how kids respond and what their brains actually. Yeah. Like. That's like a that really web of neurons. Yeah. Crazy. That's a really great metaphor. Cause I know when, when you see the photo of the, there's the three separate photos of the neurons and the pathways at the different ages and yeah the one yeah. is just like it's 
just a, a whole jumble of pathways. It's yeah, just yeah. craziness. So I really like the village metaphor. That's a really good one to kind of visualize. Yeah, that really, it's like this crazy spider web of neurons that, that really looks a lot like a six-year-old's behavior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where they're yeah. like, I want to play with my truck. No, I want yeah. ice cream. Right. And you can just picture, picture this electrical signal just taking a quick left and then yeah. a right. And, and yeah. how Whereas many times they get like, older, those parents are just like, but I told, how many times do I have to tell you to do this? <laughs> oh, yeah. The putting over on your shoes again. thing, like every parent goes through that, right? Of yeah. like, oh my gosh, do you not have your put on your shoes, yeah. please? Yeah. <laughs> Why like, oh, are you playing <laughs> with that toy by the door? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> their brain, their brain's already taken four or five left turns and it's yeah. back to where it starts. Yeah. It's yeah. like, all oh, right, shoes. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and so what, what all this ends up meaning is that the brain of the chi- of a child is really, really in the moment. They, they live so intensely in the moment, which is part of what makes childhood and teenage years, because even as an adolescence, you're quite in the moment as well. It's what makes being a child so amazing because you feel the moment so intensely. And so if you're yeah. eating good ice cream as a child, so good. Like yeah. every everything in the world is magical in that moment. It's right? the and it's, essence of mindfulness. Oh yeah, they, yeah. they are so mindful i suppose and then not all at the same time yeah yeah (laughs) it's so true you know i always tell this story when i speak to about uh, this family a number of years ago where i got the call and they'd left a message on my machine and i came in on a monday morning and listened to it and on the other end of the phone you hear screaming and smashing in the house and it's just chaotic and then so i bring the family in the next day uh, and I and I ask the the nine year old uh, what happened last night, and he, he thinks for a second and he's like, oh, last night mom made chicken. I usually don't like chicken, but that was really good. What did you put in that chicken? And you know, his parents do yeah. uh, all parents do in my office, and they're like, well, bud, you need to talk to Sean. You know, Sean's safe. He can help us, but we have to tell him what we're feeling. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, but you know, what was in that chicken? And then they're like, yeah. don't you remember you were swinging the hockey stick and. We were worried for dad's life for a second because it was getting pretty crazy. Uh, and he had a really hard time letting go of the chicken, which seems, right. which seems crazy from the outside. Mm-hmm. But for any parent who's ever questioned a child about their day coming yeah. home from school, it, it should make sense. Because when you ask a child, like, uh, how was your day at school? You, you rarely get this like chronological list of events. Rather, what you typically get is some memory from the day viewed through the lens of where they're kind of at right now, yeah. right? Like if they were just fighting with somebody on the walk home from school and you're like, how was your day? They're like, everything sucks. Yeah. Like, I hate everyone. I never want to go to school again. I hate my teacher. And you're like, wait, what? And yeah. then somebody else is like, he had a great day. Yeah. yeah or or yeah. when things are good you know, everything's good. Everything's always been good. I love my family. Everything's yeah. wonderful. Right. And so they're so in the moment, which, which can make parenting so hard, especially around things like anxiety. Cause mm-hmm. when we're asking, cause parents will often try to coerce kids into doing stuff by using those parts of the brain yeah. that kids really struggle to use. So they'll be like, but it went really well last time. Right. right. Don't you remember how much fun you had last time? Uh, and that doesn't seem to work. No, it, <laughs> it doesn't. Because kids it never can't does. hold that quite as well. No, 
Yeah, or or just imagine it going really well. Like that's also really hard for yeah. kids, right? And so I think that's a huge difference in children's brain that's really important to understand. And then, I mean, when we talk about children's brains, we should also talk about teenage brains because if you know you want to talk about when brains get the most interesting and crazy, it's probably the teenage years. And that's why it's a wild ride as a parent. I haven't gotten there yet, but I have friends who are there. <laughs> oh yeah it's a wild wild ride yeah and and I think so much of what makes it difficult I, I know um you know the the researcher David Bainbridge he he says that the teenage years are what make humans human like he mm-hmm. he said that the teen if we didn't have teenage years people couldn't be people and that it's so essential like all those crazy things that teenagers do are so important for just all that we are in, in humanity, because, you know, some of the differences of teenage brains then are, they're still terrible at planning as anyone right. who's ever worked with a teenager can guess. Uh, but on top of that, they have this really intense reward system that's far more intense than adults related to risk. And right. so when teenagers take risk, they get a ton of reward in the brain right. for doing so, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, teenage years in, in humans would essentially be like the flying the nest years for a bird uh, yeah. or moving out on your own years for other animals, which takes a lot of uh, risk aversion and risk mm-hmm. uh, reward because it's a real risk to go off and venture and figure out who you are on your own, right? To, yeah. to potentially find a partner. Like teenage love is so intense and powerful, right? Oh, yes. They love each other so much to the end It'll of the It'll never end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then they're like, I don't know why they're so mad. I've moved in with yeah. this person. And it's just, I mean, they're also still living in the moment yeah, yeah so intensely, yeah. but, but also kind of, they kind of get the worst of both worlds in some ways yeah. related to that too. Which um, is hard. And then, yeah. And then the other thing that happens to that teenage brain, which is so important when we talk about anxiety is this developmental drive towards social ranking. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at like early childhood, like up to the age of six, kids' biggest fears are typically related to caregivers. They want to know where caregivers are. They want to know they're safe. They want caregivers outside their door. They want caregivers walking with them places because, you know, evolutionarily, they've learned that uh, they're small little weak things and they just need to have adults with them Mm -hmm. uh, to be their surrogate safety. Um, And then between the ages of like six and kind of 11, kids start moving that anxiety uh, outward a little bit to the world. Like this is often when you hear kids talking about bad people. Uh, Like there's that real intense moral talk about like bad people and robbers or whatever. Uh, Sickness, natural disasters. Like what if I get sick? Uh, What if a tornado comes? Like that's typically around that age where Mm -hmm. like windstorms and that also can kind of be more wind bumps in the night. Like you'd think that was earlier in life but I, I find like it's more kind of that six to 11 year old yeah my son's eight and it sounds any sound what was that yeah what was that did you hear that <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> whereas like littler kids it's more like all of a sudden they get this creative imagination capacity mm-hmm. and they're like there's probably a three-eyed monster there's like you don't have that everywhere. so much with eight-year-olds yeah yeah where you don't have that so much with eight-year-olds they're like i heard a sound i need you to come and see what that sound is right yeah but then when they get to teenage years that anxiety shifts again now to where you know it's not so much they're just looking at kind of the broader periphery of anxiety but now they're trying to establish themselves as part of that and part Mm -hmm. of the outside world and so their value in the outside world becomes the most important thing in the universe 
to a teenager, right? Yeah. Like, like if, if I'm at a bar with my friends and I'm like, Hey guys, let's go around the table and rank ourselves based on popularity. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all going to be like, this is why we don't invite you yeah. anywhere, Sean. Yeah. Yours is a zero right now. Uh, <laughs> but if you ask any teenager, uh, Hey, can we they write do a it list for fun? Of, yeah. They can do. we write a list of who's popular yeah. in your school and put a number yeah. beside it? Yeah. They would do it. And yeah. some of them would feel terror because of where they're at on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think of teenage brains related to that being like their primary drive, which is a good drive, it's a it's an important drive to have because you know, you go from like this 11 year old who's just like picking their nose in the middle of class and could care less yeah. uh, to all of a sudden they now want to be valued and matter to people around them, which you need to survive for ages prior to. Yeah, that's part of the, So that's the, the part know. where anxiety connects with your social ability and we're social animals. So it's really important. Yeah. Like we need a community to survive. Right. So that's anxiety helping you be part of a community to survive essentially. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's such a positive force. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's so powerful that it's such a hard thing to rein in. It's like handing a kid a fire hose. It's right. fully blasting. Yeah. Uh, it's so much power initially, but it's also, I think, one of these driving forces of why we see kids lead such powerful social movements uh, across mm-hmm. the world. Like teenagers, teenagers are often uh, really fighting for positive social causes. And a lot of that has to do with, I think, looking at their value to society and yeah. wanting to be valuable to society. But it is like for a 13 year old, it can be so crippling to now all of a sudden, imagine you're walking around with this, uh, you know, invisible number over your head that can go mm. up or down based on every interaction, right? And you think of yeah. teenagers like getting out of the car to go to middle school, uh, who are like, okay, just drive away. Don't wave yeah. at me. Don't yeah. say a thing. Like I'm now, I am now on display. Drop me off a block down the street. I'll walk the rest of the way. <laughs> yeah. And now if you were to combine that part of the brain, then that still isn't super great at looking into the future and places such a high value on the social stuff yeah. that those teenage crises make so much more sense. Cause this, these are those moments of like, I'm never going back to school. You don't understand it. Like yeah. you don't get it. My life is over. They texted this and this and this, there was a oh. period at the end of the text and my life is over. Yeah. And so teenage brains are really interesting in that way and really frustrating, but really cool too. Um, because they are able to understand the world a bit more complex than mm-hmm. children. Their drives are just overwhelmingly powerful. And in that, you know, that reward for risk also sets kids up for this is why we see like that hypersexuality drive in teenage right. years and that desire to just try all the drugs under the sun. And that's, yeah. you know, no matter no matter what the campaign has been by any government across it the world ever. No, short of like, short of like imprisoning everyone they know or whatever, or cutting off limbs in some countries, perhaps short of that, like teenagers across most cultures are involved in hooliganry because they're rewarded for it. Well, and I remember hearing too, that it was, um, it's, it's a primal thing that helps the brain develop in a way to develop those memories of what, like when you're in the teenage years and that part of your brain is so hypersensitive and just working that you have all of those experiences so that you can look back on them as an adult and remember what was good and what wasn't. And I, you can, you can tell me if that's wrong or right. I just remember um, reading about that and thinking that was interesting, an interesting take on that part of your life. 
Yeah, I think it's a fair take because, you know, when you think about, you know, my wife moving here with the Bears or Alex yeah. Hanold, you know, having a brain in the teenage years that says, hey, take some risks, move out a little bit and do these things. Like it does allow you to experience things and shape your brain around doing things that you might not have done otherwise without, without that reward, right. which then, you know, can can set you up and people tend to tone it down obviously, mm-hmm. as they move into their adult years. And, and my research for my PhD is looking at men's transition to fatherhood. And I mean, that's another fascinating mm-hmm. uh, shift in anxiety. When I look at men's lives uh, specifically, absolutely, there are a lot of you know men my age who are looking back at stuff they did in the teenage years with this kind of weird mix of adoration and (laughs) cringing they're like oh to be that free and do that again but then part of them is like how did I survive yeah that was so stupid (laughs) I can't believe I lived through that how did I keep all my fingers (laughs) yeah I I definitely appreciate the brain I have now in in middle age and as somebody with kids because because having kids changes men's brains it does mm-hmm. it physically changes men's brains but yeah I can also look back and think oh boy those were exciting times yep <laughs> yeah fond memories <laughs> yeah and it was it was it was yeah. like so vivid and exciting mm-hmm. like phone calls with people that you wanted to date and stuff like that was just yeah. like you, I, I don't know if you'll ever duplicate like that oh never I high stakes emotion of those moments for the most part I know that like we've I've talked about it with a lot of my families too of like the you know the primal lizard brain and then the cognitive brain and how they kind of interact and stop interacting when anxiety kind of hits it just kind of all goes back to the lizard brain lose cognitive function for a little while (laughs) yeah that's another good point to bring up actually just briefly talking Mm -hmm. that that um you know, the, Bruce Perry certainly talks about that. He's got this four-step brain, and and it's all it's all built off this idea of the brain, the triune brain theory. So, essentially, like three brains in one, which came from this uh, guy McLean, I think, in the '60s, which right. like physiologically is really not true at all. And they thought it was at the time, but it's really not true at all. Like the brain is so interconnected. Like you don't have three separate brains stacked on top of each other. And then you're never using like only one of these tiers of brain. Like they're constantly all working, but, but where it becomes a really good theory, as you noted, is that as people get stressed, and, and this is a great segue into what we're going to move into right now, but as people get stressed, that brain changes to prioritize mm-hmm. survival. And in doing so, uh, it changes what it emphasizes and what you have the ability to do, yeah. um, which which if you were to look at how it fires, if you were to look at a scan of the brain while you're experiencing anxiety is essentially the more the more scared you'd get, the more the functioning of that brain would move downward and towards mm-hmm. its center, right, yeah. which are the older parts of the brain. Again, initially, I mentioned that your brain develops kind of from the inside out from parts mm-hmm. most essential to survival to parts least essential to survival. And as we get stressed, it's like the brain focuses itself in the opposite and moves back yeah. into those survival parts. So ends part one in our three-part series on childhood anxiety. I hope you have enjoyed this information and have gotten some stuff from it that can be useful for yourself or your family members. And I look forward to releasing part two in the series soon. Thank you for listening. Riding the Waves of Life is provided by Boundary Family Services and funded by 
the Public Health Agency of Canada. All equipment for this podcast was provided through a grant from the Phoenix Foundation.